I don't forgive because what they did is okay. Even though they did the very best they could, what they did is not okay, but I forgive now because I'm okay now. Welcome to episode 331 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Martha, Robin, and Jamie. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Martha, Robin, and Jamie, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me today is Julie. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Hi, Spencer. I asked you to choose a reading, and uh, you chose one that I don't know. I don't think many of your listeners will know this reading. It's actually from my local Al-Anon district uh, newsletter, and it's the latest edition, which is a May edition. And it's an essay by one of the members. It's titled Love, Care, and Concern. Even as I began to understand the Al-Anon program, it took me a long time to realize that harm could be caused in relationships out of love, care, and concern. Isn't it loving, I thought, to let someone know when they are making a mistake or doing something that isn't good for them? Doesn't it show I care if I gently nudge them in a direction I believe is right? I'm only trying to prevent them from getting hurt or in trouble. How could that concern be a bad thing? I have an excessive sense of responsibility and control issues, which both stem from growing up with the family disease of alcoholism. I would frequently future trip on someone else's behalf, but with me and mine, ego-driven. I tell myself, and sometimes them, that I'm advising for, for or against a particular action because I love them, or care about them, or don't wish to see harm come to them. At the core, that is really, what if I don't tell this person not to do this, and they do it, and it's terrible, and they're hurt, and it's my fault, And then they'll be mad at me and not love me anymore or disprove of me and so on and on until I die alone. My fear jumps so far ahead. This is one of the ways the family disease affects my thinking. The other part of me is control. If I can only get this person to do this or not do that, the outcome of a situation will be just as I think it it ought to be and everyone will be okay and happy with me. My fear is under that control that if things don't turn out well, you can guess where my mind goes. And once again, I die alone. I believe these things stem from the unreliability of the adults in my life as a child. There were arbitrary rules that were made up one day and changed the next, or strictly enforced one day and ignored the next. My mom was not emotionally present and unable to protect us from my dad. We were constantly trying to please him or get the approval attention of either of them. I developed a hypervigilance to situations that have the potential for conflict or drama and frequently apologized for things that were not my responsibility or my fault. I strive constantly 
not to make waves and sought the approval of others. My therapist calls it emotional PTSD, and I have been diagnosed with the persistent anxiety disorder. That's got a lot of stuff in it. There's definitely some stuff in there that I identify with, too. (laughs) Would you like to say a little bit about what moved you to choose that particular reading? I can relate to this a lot, but what particularly stood out to me is the dying alone part. Mm. So I grew up with a drinking father and non-treated Al-Anon. My father was like a tyrant growing up. I remember him saying, if you don't follow my rules, then I'm kicking you out of this house. You're on your own. So as a child, I remember thinking, okay, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? If I get kicked out, no one's going to take care of me. So I'm going to die on the streets alone. So that's where my people pleasing and thinking that I'm responsible for everyone's happiness, that I have to make sure everyone around me is happy. And if people in my life need me, that means they love me. Yeah, I identify with that. You're here today to to share your story. Where do you want to start with that? I mean, you already started a little bit with <laughs> growing up in a home with an alcoholic and, a, and, and an untreated Al-Anon. Okay. So I'll just kind of give, keep going from where I started. I'm actually not from America. I was born in another country, and I lived there until I was 13. And then my family moved here, my parents, my sisters, and I. And what's so fascinating about this disease of alcoholism is, so I lived 5,000 miles away from here, not speaking English, the first 13 years of my life. But when I go to meetings and hear shares, I mean, it's like a lot of these people, they were in my house. They were hearing what was going on. They were seeing what was going on. And they could look into my mind. So I grew up with a drinking father and my mom, who was non-treated Al-Anon. And I didn't know what alcoholism was for a long time until I became an adult. Because where I come from, my dad worked and my mom was the homemaker. And it's very typical typical for men in business. It's like they meet up after typical business hours, and that's how they close business deals. They go have dinner, they drink, they smoke. Mm. And so all grown-up men, maybe not all, but most grown-up men in my life, they drank and they smoked. And then my family moved here, and a culture shock at age 13. I had to learn a whole new way of life. Yeah. (laughs) So on top of growing up with, you know, feeling responsible for my family's happiness, I literally grew up feeling like I was the glue that held my family together. Mm. My parents fought a lot, a lot. They would start out arguing about the most benign things in life. Then it pretty soon progressed to them shouting at each other calling each other names, horrible names. And then things got thrown, doors got slammed. And then sometimes there was physical violence. Mm -hmm. And this was a pattern in my life. Sometimes, actually quite often, they would involve, I don't know about my sisters, I'm the youngest of three girls, involve me in their arguments. One of them would turn to me, well, didn't your father say this? So from a very young age, I felt like I had to be the referee or depending on what I said, the argument either got worse 
well, I guess it always got worse, no matter what I said. <laughs> and I, I felt like I could never do it right. But I just knew, oh, but I am the, the, the decider. What can I say the next time so that they'll stop fighting and I won't be scared? I know that when I attended those educational sessions at, at treatment centers, sometimes they talked about the roles in the family and in particular the roles that children take on in the family. And one of those is hero. This is the person who holds the family together, who feels they need to fix everything. And it sounds like that's who you were. Yes. I felt like I had to be, I didn't know any other role in my life. And yes, I I, I thought I was the hero in my mom's life. Actually, Uh I grew up feeling like I had to be my mother's husband. Mm. best friend sister daughter my mother confided in me things about our marriage to my dad that she wouldn't share with her own sister i realized after i got in alanon that i didn't know where my mom ended where i began i guess that's codependency right mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i felt like i had to be my mom's hero that i had to make up to her what my my dad wasn't. That's a heavy load to put on a child. At what age would you say that that started at? Mm, I remember starting to feel this way probably around 10 years old. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's rough on a 10-year-old. You shouldn't need to do that. Right? Yeah. So this is what you grew up with and... Um, Understanding from what you're saying that your parents never found recovery from this. Is that true? Right, right. They're still married. So they have been married now 49 years. They live five minutes away from me. I mean, they, they've changed. They're different. But I'm a different person now. Right. Thanks to years of therapy and Al-Anon. So I've come to let go of my resentment, both of them. So for a long time, I had so much anger and resentment toward both of them, actually. I grew up feeling like my father was a monster. I hated him, really. But now I can honestly say I love both of them for who they are. They both are sick. Whether they ever seek treatment or recovery, that is up to them. I respect their choices, and I can have compassion for them just for today, where they are. And I know in my heart that they did the very best they could with what they knew and what they had. It took me a long time to actually take that into my heart mm-hmm. and to really believe it and live it and practice it, but I do. So I guess maybe that's detachment with love. I'm able to actually spend time with them. Small doses, mm-hmm. but I now know I have choices. They still bicker <laughs> when I'm visiting with them, but if they try to pull me into one of their debates or arguments or discussions, I choose not to be involved. I just say as kindly as possible, I am not going to get involved in this discussion. And guess what? Now I can physically walk away. I I can leave if I'm really uncomfortable. Yeah. That is the difference. And I really realized that I had forgiven them 
in a meeting, I heard someone say, well, if I say I forgive them, that means I'm saying I'm okay with what they did. And I had one of my spiritual awakening moments. Then it occurred to me, well, Julie, I don't forgive because what they did is okay. Even though they did the very best they could, what they did is not okay. But I forgive now because I'm okay now. Mm. So in between, I don't know what alcoholism is, and it's my job to fix the whole family. And now, some stuff must have happened that brought you into Al-Anon, brought you into the recovery rooms. So what happened? So I grew up having all those isms, right? People pleasing. Yeah. Thinking that I was responsible for everyone's happiness. And as you can imagine, (laughs) my significant relationships were not healthy at all in the beginning. The first two guys that I dated, I'm pretty sure they had a problem with drinking. They both drank a lot and they both got DUIs. But I thought, of course, it was my job to fix them and fix their lives. I grew up feeling like I had this big hole in my heart. And when I met the right man to fill that hole, that I would finally live happily ever after. And of course, it life does not work that way. I found myself more miserable, more exhausted than... Ever just trying to make sure that these people, not just the men in my life, my significant relationships, but everyone else in my life, making sure that they were okay. Because I thought, well, surely if I make sure they're okay, that means I'm making sure they need me, mm-hmm. which means they love me. And as long as I continue to make sure they need me, they're going to love me forever. And I will be okay. And it didn't turn out that way. Somewhere along the way, I started using food as drug of my choice. Food gave me comfort. And because I wasn't allowed to feel as a child, I grew up and I didn't even know what feelings were. When all these stuck down feelings, they would surface, right? I would get triggered or I heard in a meeting recently, someone said instead of triggered, they use the term activated. I like that. Yeah, it, it has a different feel to the word, doesn't it? Trigger yes. to me yes. is like, I'm right on an edge. And when I'm triggered, I will bounce off in some direction. Whereas activated is kind of like, oh, this started something in me. Yeah, I, I like that. Me too. Me too. So I would get activated and then all these feelings, frozen feelings, they would just surface and I would have a visceral reaction. Like my heart would start beating fast. My skin would get hot and and I would sometimes almost get dizzy. But I didn't know what they were. I just was so scared that this was going to somehow destroy me. But it was a feeling. So what I started to do was I started eating to stuff it all down. I got so good at it that I could tell feeling or unpleasant feeling like a mile away from coming. As soon as I recognized it, I would start eating. Kind of like, I guess, 
how maybe an alcoholic uses drink or someone goes shopping or gambling or whatever. I guess maybe this is how any addiction works. Is The thing with the food addiction it, with me was on top of not dealing with my childhood and all those feelings that I hadn't dealt with, it just created another layer of problem. And I think somewhere in my subconscious, I created that food problem so that as long as I thought about and worried about the food problem, I didn't have to really look within myself to deal with what was really at the base of it or the root of it or the cause of it. Yes. So I read all these self-help books because I thought I could fix myself. Something with my life because I got to a point where I just, I didn't want to live anymore. I was so miserable because I was having physical symptoms from just eating so much. And then all the emotional and spiritual symptoms from not dealing with my childhood issues. And of course, I couldn't ask for help. Part of the message growing up was you you don't ask for it. There's no one you can rely on or trust out there. If the very people who are supposed to love you no matter what and nurture you and take care of you, if they don't do their job, who else is out there? There's nobody. Well, but then there are all these self-help books out there at the bookstore. I, I would go and get them and read them. And the thing is, I got the ideas intellectually. And I mm-hmm. thought, oh, starting tomorrow, I'm going to do this thing, you know, whatever it yeah. is. The, the, starting tomorrow. You know, uh, starting tomorrow. And I do it perfectly. And then I get that safety and happiness. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be okay forever. Yeah. Didn't work, did it did work it? like that? No, I don't it, think so. It did not. No, sir, it did not. And so one day, I think, no, not I think, I know my higher power was doing for me what I could not do for myself. I just decided, okay, Julie, you have to make a choice right now. You are killing yourself right now, slowly with food. So you have to be either okay with continuing on this path and dying, or if you decide that you want to live, you have to, you have to do something differently. You have to, you have to choose. And I decided I wanted to live. I didn't want to die. There was something in me that said, there's more to life than this misery that I'm repeating day after day. So that's when I went and found a therapist. My work had a program where I could find a therapist and get a few sessions for free. So I called that number. And I started going to therapy. She said, at first, you have to come every week. So I went every week. A long while later, she said, okay, you can come every other week now. (laughs) Every other week. And then a long while later, she said, okay, you can come just once a month. We'll call it maintenance. So I had been in therapy for a dozen years. By this time, life was much better. I was long away from being on the brink of suicide, and I knew there was a God, and this God wanted what was best for me. Mm-hmm. I knew that intellectually, but I just I felt like something in my heart wasn't connecting. And by this time, I had met the right guy, but I knew 
I knew by this time that one right guy, there was no one right guy who would fill my hole. I, I knew through therapy that no one outside of me could make me happy or fill that hole, that it was my job to fill that hole. But I quite didn't know yet how that, I felt like that hole was partially filled, but not completely. And I had a kid by this time and I was sitting in my therapist's office, literally saying, you know, all my life, I feel like I've tried to be this good person. So I feel like I don't know who I am because I tried to be this good person. And she said, well, you need to go check out Al-Anon. And and, you know, so this, I, I, I had been seeing her for 12 years and she knew me, right? So she actually said, well, I'm giving you homework. Your homework for next time is you're going to go check out Al-Anon. Because she knew that I was a perfectionist. And, you know, you put anything <laughs> in terms of context of homework. Oh, I'm right there. You know, not only am I going to do it, complete it, and then I'm going to do it. Like, I'm going to be at the top of my class, right? <laughs> she knew that if she told you to go to Al-Anon, that, that you would then feel you had to do Al-Anon perfectly. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, she just knew that if she put it in context of homework, that yeah. I was more likely to do it than not. Got it. But the thing is, Spencer, I didn't. I didn't right away. It took me like two months. Uh-huh. I, I mean, that's how scared I was of checking out Alan. I, mean, <laughs> I had looked up meetings. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very lucky because I live in an area where there's a lot of meetings. There mm-hmm. are meetings every day and at various hours. And I looked them up and I just, what I have to go to a place where I don't know anyone and to a group of people. I have no idea how many people will be there. I have no idea what these people will look like, sound like. And I, I, I'm going to be put on the spot. Probably I was making up movies in my head and I I just didn't want to go there. A couple of months later, something happened with my dad where I started feeling like that responsibility again. I hadn't lived with my dad for several years. I had my own life now. I was married and had a kid, but I still got activated. Mm. And that's when I realized, okay, I'm going to go check out this Al-Anon thing and see what happens. So I picked a meeting and then I went and it was lovely. It was a small meeting, maybe 10 people, 10 people at the most, all women. And they were so kind to me. They kind of took me under their wings. One lady explained how the meeting worked. And she even said steps are how we relate to ourselves and traditions are how we relate with other people because they were reading the steps and one tradition, I think, at that Mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. The thing that really got me to go back was when people shared there was not one share that I didn't find at least a little bit of myself in every single share. Isn't that amazing, huh? (laughs) People who on the outside seem completely different from you, completely different from me. And then they share and I'm like, wait, wait, are you living in my head? (laughs) Right? Totally. Totally. Yes. Yes. And then I share and then 
there was at least a couple of heads that nodded. Like they heard me, like they could relate to me. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh my gosh, maybe I did find a place that I belong. Yeah, that's so, so powerful. It, it is, it is. There's, you know, that sense of belonging, like I felt like I had kind of drifted in my life right here and there. I so relate to that Dr. Seuss book, Are You My Mother? <laughs> like, you know, that little uh, going at like, are you my mother? Like going to all these different places, like right. trying to look for some, some place and some person in the beginning where I really felt belonged. And in Al-Anon, I mean, I truly, truly, truly feel I belong and I don't have to be anything other than me just for today. That is wonderful. That is the thing that still sticks out to me from my first meeting was that I wasn't alone. Because I I had been alone for so long. Alone with people all around me. Because I was alone in my skin. So you've been in the program how long now? I'm seven years young. Seven years young. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How has your life changed? My life has changed beyond words. Beyond my wildest imagination. I am living my best life, Spencer. I can truly say that life is beautiful. I've connected with my higher power who has let me know that I have a purpose to be here. I'm made from God and God is in me and in you, in all Alana, and in, in every human being in this world and in everything. It's me who sees or doesn't see God. Mm-hmm. When I'm going through my craziness and my disease, I forget. I forget. Mm-hmm. But Al-Anon helps me remember. So I'll go back a little bit. I came into Al-Anon, and then I'll talk a little bit about what's happened between the beginning mm-hmm. and now. I went to Al-Anon for a year and then still went to therapy. <laughs> and then a year later, my therapist gave me another assignment. She said, well... You have to find a sponsor now. (laughs) And I was like, what? You mean I have to ask someone to help me with something and risk rejection? (laughs) Yeah. And what? And and my therapist said, well, you know, the the meat of the program is really the 12 steps, right? You you need to start working the steps and you, you get a sponsor. That's what the sponsor's main job is, to help you with the steps. Because... I had been with her for many years, and she had never suggested something that wasn't good for me. So I said, okay. And I asked someone, actually someone from my very first meeting. And by this time, I had checked out one other meeting. And she said yes. And something happened pretty immediately that told me she wasn't the right person. She was not the person that my higher power had chosen for me. So I got the message, and then I asked someone else. And she has been my sponsor ever since. So I guess six years now. My higher power speaks to to me through all people, but especially her. Every time I speak with her, my higher power speaks to me, tells me exactly what I need to hear. She loves me unconditionally. She's there for me. And when I tell her stuff and I'm rolling my eyes going, I can't believe I am telling her this yet again. <laughs> like, just eight weeks ago, 
I was doing my step five with her and I told her I'd done this thing. And then, <laughs> and then today I'm telling her again, okay. And she, she just, she's so accepting of me. Mm-hmm. She loves me. I had been in program for a couple of years and something happened that just catapulted me like deep into these 12 steps and into Al-Anon. And I feel like that event has, is like, it's, it's a lot of where my life is and who I am and how I'm living. My husband, then he went to work one morning and just like any other morning that he went to work and he had an accident at work and he fell and hit his head. And what medically should have been a simple subdural hematoma, which is bleeding in the lining of the brain, mm. turned out to be a major aneurysm that had ruptured that, mm. that they didn't see the, the day he got injured. So he ended up having three brain surgeries in a week. Oh, jeez. So the last surgery, as a result of the, the injuries and all the complications, he ended up having a massive stroke. He had his last surgery a week from the date of his injury. He, he wasn't supposed to make it medically, but he made it through, which was a miracle in itself. And then he started making this awesome recovery, medical recovery. And then a week from that date, so two weeks after his injury date, via his cell phone, I found out that he'd been unfaithful to me for two years. So that just put me into this dark, dark hole. I'd been dealing with his injury, hanging on Mm -hmm. day by day. And when I found that out, I just crumbled. I felt like life, life as I knew it just shattered right in front of my eyes. But the thing was, though, even though I felt like I was breaking apart into pieces, I also found out how much love I had in my life. And again, my higher power kept doing for me day by day what I couldn't do for myself. People showed up. Al-Anon people, non-Al-Anon people. And looking back, I can say that my higher power put the right people in the right place at the right time because mm-hmm. there was so much going on with injury, complications. I needed to make so many decisions on my husband's behalf and on my behalf yeah. and, and on my seven-year-old son's behalf, dealing with everything. But the right people showed up in the right place at the right time to help me make those decisions. And the thing was, right before this happened, Spencer, I had done steps one, two, three. And I was about to embark on step four. (laughs) Well, you had the foundation, right? One, two, and three are the foundation. I I have this question in my head that that I'm going to ask. So when your husband had his accident, did that reactivate all your childhood fixing and saving feelings? That is a very good question. I was activated, but thanks to program, not to the point where I would have just gone to the place of thinking that I was responsible for everything or whether he recovered or how he recovered. Mm Mm-hmm. There were some questions because some decisions had to be made pretty quickly on the spot. 
where I, afterward I did have some second thoughts. Did I make the right call on that surgery or should I have asked for more or was that nurse doing that thing right? But not to the point of I didn't, as my sponsor says, I didn't pick up that bat and start beating myself all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean, that right people showed up at the right time and in the right place, Mm -hmm. because not only did those people help me make those decisions, they didn't make the decisions for me. And I still wanted, you know, as a codependent, like, someone, please take this away. And I, I want you to tell me what to do. So if this thing blows up, I can blame you, really. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So did your sponsor do the sponsor thing of asking questions? She did. <laughs> she, she, she did. And then, you know, when I found out that my husband had been unfaithful, of course, in my mind, immediately, okay, Julie, do you divorce him? Do you not divorce him? Do you right. divorce him? Do you not? Di-? Like, he's still lying in the neural ICU, and I'm, like, going around doing, and my sponsor said, Julie, stop. You don't have to do this right now. This decision does not have to be made right now. Yeah. Yeah. You you will know when you will know. And right now, the most important thing for you is to take care of yourself. You need to do self-care. And then do the next right thing. So that was, what, four years ago? Four and a half years ago, yeah. So it goes to... I am divorced now. What my sponsor said is, uh, well, before she said that, speaking of steps one, two, and three, again, you know, my higher power, it just, everything happens exactly the way it's supposed to and when it's supposed to. Because I had done the first three steps for weeks and weeks, all I could do was go around saying those first three steps. And I said them out loud, really driving to places, doing things. And and then my sponsor said, I really urge you to not stop working on your steps. Step four is next. A lot of people, they run away when, when they get to step four or they're reluctant. But she said it would probably be best for me to continue on. And that step four and the rest of the steps would probably help me. So I did step four while I was getting divorced mm. and why it was so very painful. And I did it with that book, Blueprint for Progress. Oh my goodness. I didn't realize actually how many pages there were until I heard on one of your podcasts, you said 92 pages. <laughs> and then I thought, wow, I did that whole book though. Dang. Yeah. And so when she suggested that, and then I looked at the book, oh my gosh, I hate writing. And you want me to write in this whole book? But then, of course, because I trusted my sponsor and just something told me, you know, Julie, keep going. My higher power told me, you know, I got your back. Just just do what your sponsor says. So I did it and it took me a year and I thought I hated writing. But guess what happened? I mean, there are these really some abstract questions in there. Yes. Like, what What are you... So then I had to really dig within myself and go back in my memory. Yeah. How? What did that feel like? How did that happen? But once I started writing, I couldn't stop. Things came out of my hand 
that I didn't know were there. I filled up every page. I wrote on the margins. <laughs> I mean, I'm like. <laughs> I, I understand that experience. Some of those questions that didn't happen with, but then there were the ones where I don't have enough space to write what I need to write, you know? I think you just expressed beautifully the power of writing, why we are suggested, recommended to write our fourth step, because it is very different. It's very, very different from just thinking it. Yes, yes. But it's also different from saying it. I, I think I might have talked about this on the, on the podcast, though. Whenever it was my uh, step study group, we were, we were looking at step five. And, and I recognized that one of the ways that I admit my defects of character to my higher power is by writing. Because like you said, I start writing. And sometimes stuff comes out that I didn't know was going to come out. Yeah. So that sounds like that was difficult, but also enriching. Very, very. Oh, now I'm remembering what my sponsor said about step four. She said, it's like looking at myself on a map. Doing step four helps me figure out where I have been in my life. And then I can also look at where I am now. And then I can look also on the map where I want to go from here. Mm. And that's exactly what step four was for me, doing that book. I got to know me, the real me. So the thing that I was telling my therapist when she told me to go to al I don't know who I am. I, I learned who I am. I heard in a meeting, al is, she said, uncover, discover, and discard. Uncover. Discover, discard. These, yeah. All these jewels here, all these little pearls. Yes. That book, that 90-page book, <laughs> I looked at and <laughs> was like, what? Yeah. has become a, a treasure in yeah. life. Yeah. Eric reminded me recently, it also has 26 chapters, which means if you study each chapter for two weeks, you, it takes exactly a year to go through it. That's right, 52 weeks. Yeah. He's, he's got a, a step four meeting where they, they do each chapter two weeks and then they move on to the next chapter. So step four, then step five, huh? Yes, yes. So I'm, I'm curious again, both as, as a sponsor and somebody who's worked the steps a few times, did you work the workbook with your sponsor? Did you meet regularly and talk about what you'd, what you'd written or did you wait till you'd got it all done and then, and then meet in a big step five? We did it incrementally. Uh-huh. So I would do a couple of chapters and then we would meet and share. Uh-huh. Then she would give me her feedback. And the, the thing was, you know, all the character defects that I had, I also heard in a meeting character defects are really character assets that have gone stray. And I realized that too. For instance, control. Control is huge for me because baseline of control is fear, right? Hmm. I'm a control enthusiast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I heard that in a meeting too, Spencer. Someone, someone recently in a meeting said, well, instead of control freak, I say control enthusiast. I said, oh, I like that better. 
<laughs> it doesn't sound as negative, right? I, I realized that where I was growing up in my home of origin, it helped me survive because things felt so out of control because I didn't know from day to day what my day was going to look like. Some chapters at the end of, you know, findings, like, I think it is like after, you know, doing this, you know, what have you realized or found out about yourself? I wrote, again, not knowing what I was going to write. In some of those chapters, I wrote positive things about me. Like there's a a relationship chapter (laughs) in the finding section. I wrote, oh, I am someone I would enjoy being in a relationship with. All right. And I didn't know I was going to write that when I started writing in that chapter. Yeah. Wow. Like she said, it's a map. It is a map. You find the places on the map you want to stay out of and the places you want to go into. Oh, I like that. Right? I, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because there are definitely some places that I, I don't want to go anymore. They don't help me. I kept working the steps and I was able to forgive my now ex-husband. And then I also was able to admit my part in our marriage, not take responsibility for what he did, mm-hmm. but in the duration of our marriage, because I didn't have Al-Anon for majority of our marriage and in uh, our relationship. And I was able to forgive myself for my part. What I've realized is what I don't have, I can't give anyone else. What I don't practice, I can't expect from anyone else. So forgiveness has to start with me. The more I forgive myself, the the more I am able to forgive others. So you moved on to asking for change from your higher power, step six and seven? Yes, yes. And I love when you talk about on your podcast, that's six and seven, because at first me being again, um, control enthusiast and task finisher. Right. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. My, my sponsor had warned me step six, step seven are not like, there's nothing that you go and do and finish and go, yay. You know, <laughs> they are very spiritual steps. She said, and at first I was uncomfortable with that. But I knew if I did my footwork and kept doing what my sponsor suggested, I would work through them, those steps, and my higher power would give me signs and let me know what I needed to do to have my character defects or shortcomings removed. I read the chapters and paths to recovery. I did the questions, and then I pr- I kept praying and meditating, going to my meetings and checking in with my sponsor. And what came to me was, Doing those very things, I was doing my step six and seven. I want to go back a little bit. You talked a little while ago about admitting something in in step five, and then a few weeks later having to go back and say, ah, I did it again. And for me, I mean, that is part of steps six and seven, that when my higher power removes from me whatever it is that is blocking me from change— I still have to practice the new way. And sometimes I need to get reminders that I have to practice the new way, right? When I repeat something, that's like, oh, this is a reminder. Like, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to keep doing this. There's a new way for me to act. That's how it's worked for me. You know what? That's beautiful. 
Thank you. I'm going to remember that because that's exactly what my sponsor says. It's practice. Yeah. I tend to be black and white, right or wrong, you know, all or nothing. Like I want my character defects removed forever and ever. Just <laughs> like, like that. <laughs> I did this one thing, God. And, but then if I sit here and really think about it, Julie, you've lived this way for decades, doing the same things over and over. It's not realistic for me to think I'll do this one thing that'll remove my character defects and then I'm going to be free of it forever. That's just unreasonable. And my sponsor reminds me, actually, yeah, it is practice. It is repetition. And at first, it feels the first time I do it, whatever it is, it feels clunky, awkward, yeah. uncomfortable, which means that's why I need practice. So this map that you built in step four, you know, in the, in the books, it's typically like, and you should go back and do this again. What I found is when I do it again, and I can go back and I can look at the step four that I wrote. Actually, it's been eight years since the last time I did a formal step four. And the one that I did like four years before that, and the one that I did four years before that, and I can see how the landscape has changed. I can see where in 2003, I was really struggling with something that is not an issue for me anymore. I can see that. And I know some people like to burn their step fours, and I understand that too. I'm glad I've kept mine because I can see that. Because change for me tends to be gradual. There are very few times when something has just suddenly changed for me. So I actually have to take the effort to say, yeah, this is still bugging me, but wow, it's so much better than it was. This is the progress. I like how you put that, Spencer. Yeah, I still do it, but it's better. Oh, progress, not perfection. I guess. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So where are you now? I'm on step 10. Mm. So how was that uh, eight and nine for you? You know, actually, I want to say they were not so tough. I was ready after doing step six and seven. And so I've come to really like step six and seven because now I understand. I have the map and that's how I really get to where I want to go. And there had been people for steps eight and nine that I was ready to make amends to. And I had already started making amends to where I started detaching with love from my parents. That's actually my, one of my amends to my parents, detaching from them with love. And then my sponsor advised, and I, I had heard this in meetings for step eight to put me on the list. And then when we got to step nine, she asked me to write down a couple of specific things that I would be doing to make amends to myself. So I did that. And some of the, the amends were direct and some I'm making living amends to. Mm -hmm. And I, I also like when you share how you make living amends by doing things differently. It may not be toward that person, 
that I wrong too, because there's a friend that I can't get in touch with now that I feel that I wronged. I I have no idea where he is, what he does. My sponsor suggested that I write a card or letter to him. So I did that. I still have it with me, but just writing it was cathartic or therapeutic. And I read it to my sponsor and that felt even more healing. Mm -hmm. But part of my amend is also making a living amend not doing what i did to him with other people in my life now yeah yeah not only is that a good way to move forward but sometimes that's all we can do like in this case i have amends to make to my first wife and i've totally lost touch with her and i know i'm a different person now if i ever encounter her i can do it you know i can make the direct amends but for now i can not do the things that I did when I was, you know, 20. <laughs> Just a little bit ago, right, Spencer? Just a few <laughs> decades ago. Yeah. <laughs> this is the, that reading you had where, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm a horrible person and I'm going to die alone. I mean, I can, I can go back and I can feel that from when I was 20. So, yeah. So step 10 is, uh, Continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. That's the beginning of the I'm living my life a new way steps. Yeah. Sometimes I hear them called maintenance steps, 10, 11, and 12. That's too neutral. I mean, steps 10, 11, and 12, this is the new way of living. It sets the parameters. It sets the shape of a new way of life that we've brought ourselves to by going through Steps one through nine. Yes. So here you are. I am. I am. Yes. Is there anything else that you would like to share with somebody who's listening? Maybe somebody who's, I'm, I'm hearing from people who haven't been to a meeting yet, but I'm listening to your podcast. It was somebody who wrote a few weeks ago and said, if I go to an l meeting, it's your fault or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> It wasn't exactly those words. <laughs> so I always like to try to speak to the person who's new in the program or the person who is, what do we say, Al-Anon curious. Mm-hmm. So what would you say? I would say I didn't want to go to my first meeting either. I only went because I felt like I had to, and it changed my life. If what you are doing right now and up to this point in your life is not working for you and you are ready to try something new, yes, it takes an enormous amount of courage. It will be scary. It will not be easy. But go to your first meeting and it will be so worth it. And if you don't like the first meeting, we have a saying in our program, check out at least six meetings. If that's too many for you and you didn't like your first meeting, go to a second meeting and just see what happens. You might find something or someone that you connect with. Like we did. Absolutely. I keep coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So you wanted to close with the the gifts of Al-Anon. Yes. This is from the book From Survival to Recovery. And in the edition, I have it on pages 267 to 268. 
I will be putting that in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 331, along with the link for the reading you opened with also. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives can be transformed. We can become mature, responsible individuals with a great capacity for joy, fulfillment, and wonder. Though we will never be perfect, continued spiritual progress can reveal to us our enormous potential. Many of us discover what our fellow members already know, that we are both worthy of love and loving. We learn to love others without losing ourselves, and we accept love in return. Our sight, once clouded and distorted, can clear enough for us to perceive reality and recognize truth. Courage and fellowship replace fear. It becomes possible for us to risk failure and develop new previously hidden talents. Our lives, no matter how bad and degraded, will offer hope to share with others. We begin to feel and know the vastness of our emotions without being slaves to them. Our secrets no longer have to bind us in shame. As we gain the ability to forgive ourselves, our families, and the world, our choices expand. With dignity, we stand for ourselves without standing against others. Serenity and peace will have new meaning as we allow our lives and the lives of those we love to flow day by day with God's ease, balance, and grace. No longer terrified, we discover that we are free to delight in life's paradox, mystery, and awe. We laugh more. Faith replaces fear and gratitude comes naturally as we realize that our higher power is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you. I love this book. And I asked you to choose some music that spoke to you in recovery, and you picked three songs. What's the first one? It's called One Call Away by Charlie Puth. So this song, one of my biggest spiritual awakenings in life happened when I heard this song on the radio. So I was in the midst of getting divorced and I was in a lot of fear about my future. And that day I had enough self-care sense to have a sitter come and be with my son who was seven at the time. I had gone to the gym And then I was driving to the grocery store afterwards. So I'm sweaty and like hot and I'm in the car. It's dark and raining outside and I'm driving and I'm making up one of my movies, you know, in my head where I die alone. Of course, you know, I get divorced and, you know, I don't get custody of my son and I don't have any money. I become destitute and I die. And on the radio, this song comes on and It's a song, I'm pretty sure, for a lover. But, you know, my higher power, every verse of this song, I heard it from my higher power. And I just started bawling. What some of the lyrics say is, come along with me and don't be scared. I just want to set you free. Come on, come on, come on. You and me can make it at anywhere. For now, we can stay here for a while. And because, you know, I just want to see you smile. No matter where you go. You know you're not alone. I'm only one call away. I'll be there to save the day. Superman got nothing on me. I'm only one call away. Mm. That's when I realized no matter what happened, I was going to be okay. That's a gift, isn't it? Huge, huge gift. 
get to talk for a while because you've been talking for so long. This book, From Survival to Recovery, I think the first time I really encountered that book was at a meeting in Santa Cruz. Oh. I was in Santa Cruz for business, and I was at, at that point struggling with my adult child who was making decisions that I didn't agree with. And I needed some recovery and I found a meeting and in that meeting, they read from that book. They actually passed the book around and people read a paragraph as it went around the room. And I really had not been familiar with that book before then. I'm sure I'd seen it on the literature table at my meeting, but I was like, oh, there's some good stuff in here. I think I'm going to have to get this book because something, probably the paragraph that I read spoke directly to what was happening in my life that time. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> of course it did. How else was it going to happen? <laughs> yeah. So more recently, because that would have been like 2013 when my, my kid was going to grad school. Anyway, if you want to hear that story, you can go back and listen to some episodes in 2013 where I was like trying to process this thing and trying to use my program to you know not break the relationship between me and my kid. More recently, this this last week, it's sort of an interesting week for recovery. I was invited a couple of weeks ago by somebody who listens to the podcast, actually, to do a lead at a meeting in, in California. I'm sitting here in Michigan, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the Zoom and seeing the people with, like, the sunny blue sky behind them sitting outside. And, you know, I'm like, it'll come. It'll be here. I know that. This is one of the those opportunities that have opened up because of other things that closed down. I got an opportunity to go to a meeting that I probably will never be physically at in body. Who knows? I mean, you don't know. I talked about boundaries because I had been thinking about boundaries for last week's episode. And I guess what I said resonated with some people because that's what they said. And actually one person was like, can I call you? I need to talk about something. And I was like, sure, we can do that. So making, making connections is amazing. You know, it was a different format of meeting than what I'm used to. A lot more readings at the beginning, an hour and a half instead of an hour. All the meetings here are an hour. But I, you know, I remembered back that meeting in Santa Cruz was an hour and a half with a break in the middle. It was like a refreshment break. You know, you could get up and get coffee or something. Yeah. Hey, what can I say? They're laid back in Santa Cruz, right? They sure are. <laughs> yeah, so my Saturday step meeting, we have our group conscience on the second Saturday, which it was. And there was some issues around how to best do this Zoom meeting thing. The person who had set up the meeting had decided, based on some things that people said that maybe it would be good to take the reading because we're reading from Paz to recovery in that, in that meeting. And so what he did was he took photographs of the pages from Paz to recovery. And then he did a screen share while we were reading them because, you know, it's a paragraph at a time quote around the room. And, and that would help people who didn't have the book. And apparently he got feedback that there were people who didn't like that. So, he brought that up in the group conscience and there was enough people saying, you know, actually I like to see everybody's faces and, and I don't need to see the words on the screen. And sometimes I like to just close my eyes and listen. 
What we decided was, because it was also brought up, like, sometimes there are people who don't have the book, that when we ask at the beginning if there are newcomers, then we can put the words up for the newcomers because they won't have the book and it might be helpful to them. And I think we'll probably come back to it next month. Another thing that came up in the group conscience is how can we continue to contribute money? And why would we contribute money? I mean, we don't have really expenses now. One person's paying for a Zoom account, which he said is less than half what he used to put in the basket to meetings in a month. He said, this is my contribution. So we talked about being able to contribute online to the state and the World Service and the, and the local Al-Anon groups. And there was some conversation, some of the meetings in the area have set up their own PayPal or Venmo to accept contributions. There was concern about, well, anonymity, because you're totally not anonymous when you Venmo or PayPal, <laughs> right? I mean, you're not. Right. <laughs> I don't care, but some people do. And we, we agreed that for the moment, we weren't going to do that. It's a small meeting. Somebody said, you know, if we did that, we could then, the church isn't charging us rent while we're not meeting in the church, but, you know, they still have expenses. And we could make a gratitude donation to them in gratitude that they will be there when we come out of this thing. So I think that, again, that's something that is going to come back up. And then we went on to step three because we were on step three. This brings me around to the theme of my life for the past, whatever it is, eight weeks or something, at least, is acceptance. And that's what I saw in step three this time. You know, turning my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand God is about accepting, accepting God's will, accepting God's guidance. There's so much in my life right now that is not in my control. You know, I want to go to the grocery store. Well, I try to limit my visits to the grocery store. I, last night, I had a recipe. It was going to be yummy. It turned out I was out of garlic. I had a head of garlic, but it had gotten moldy. Okay? And I was out of capers. This was a tilapia with lemon, garlic, and capers. Just, mwah, it should have been yeah. so good, right? Didn't have any capers. I'm like, oh, we always have capers. We have like four jars of capers. What the heck? Okay? <laughs> Pre- coronavirus, I would have hopped in the car, run to the grocery store, got garlic and capers. Last night, I, I made do. We didn't have capers. We did have lemon. We had dried garlic. You know, My wife's out shopping this afternoon. I said, when you get garlic, could you also get a jar so I can put it in the fridge and have it as a backup? <laughs> I, I adjust. I have to adjust. I'm, I'm, I like fresh ingredients, but sometimes, you know, that's not possible, right? Friday... I took a staycation day. I'm still working. I'm still working from actually right here where I'm sitting right now. But I was feeling like there was stuff that I wanted to do in my life that I wasn't getting done on weekends. I wasn't getting done in the evenings. And I was like, I'm going to take a day off. I can. I should. I encourage everybody else in my work group to take a day off when they need to. I should do that for me too, right? I should take care of myself. And of course, Friday mo morning, I woke up and my nose was all stuffy and running. And I was like, why? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a sign that I needed that time. You know, 
We went to a nursery and, and bought some flowers and stuff, which are still there because we're having frosts over the weekend and we're going to go pick them up next week and when we're past our frost danger. And then I took a nap. And I slept most of the afternoon because that's what I needed to do and I could. And there were things I wanted to do that I didn't get done. And that's okay. You know, God's plan for me on Friday was to take care of myself, apparently. So how about you? How has recovery working in your life recently? I totally hear you about going to the grocery store. It's a production for me now, right? I have to estimate how long I might have to wait in a line and I time it. So yeah, yesterday I went to the grocery store and there's a certain one that I like to go to. And my shopping day is usually Saturday morning and I get there before they open like 40, 45 minutes, and there's already a line, but it's okay. I I don't mind waiting in places. I have my phone, and I'm usually listening to the recovery show, and (laughs) and so it's fine. But then I got there, and the line was probably twice as long as it usually is Mm -hmm. on Saturday mornings. I guess probably because today's Mother's Day, people were out shopping for ingredients and whatnot. So I got in line, and this is how it works for me. I actually hear people. I'm a very visual person, but I also hear people's voices. I I hear my sponsor's voice, like when I'm doing something or come across something. And I heard your voice, Spencer. Really? (laughs) Acceptance. I got in line and what could I do? I mean, I needed to grocery shop and the line was as long as it was. And I mean, right. So acceptance. So I stood in line and I listened to the recovery show. And then I, kind of walked around in my little circle and there was a bench next to me. So I kind of did, you know, up and down on the bench and I got a little bit of exercise and it was fine. And then speaking of acceptance, so I ordered a new mattress earlier this week and I was super excited. I was totally ready for this new comfortable mattress to come. And then They also had a thing where someone else could come and pick up my old mattress, but it wasn't them. It wasn't like they were coming to deliver my new mattress and pick up my old one. It was another place. So I had to arrange it. They sent me an email saying, oh, your mattress has been shipped and estimated delivery like today. And this was the next day. And I was like, yay. So then I called that other place for the old mattress removal and they came and picked it up and that was great. Right. And then did my new mattress arrive? No, no, it did not. That was on Friday. And then yesterday morning, while I was waiting in that line at the grocery store, I was checking my email and there was an email from the mattress store. Your delivery has been delayed. Estimated (laughs) delivery Tuesday now. Oh, right. Oh boy. I hope you have a couch or something. <laughs> I, 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 so I've been sleeping on the couch and I actually have a twin size air mattress that I can bring up from my storage. But again, I mean, acceptance, right? I mean, yeah. it's, so I could, I guess, throw a tantrum. Maybe, maybe that's what I would, would have done before I went on, called up the company and, or called up UPS and, you know, just let them know exactly what I thought and how it felt. But I mean, where, my sponsor says, play the tape forward. Where does that go? I mean, we're all in the shoes. Shipments are delayed everywhere for everything because of the situation we're in. My couch, 
it's not uncomfortable. It's maybe not comfortable, but it's not uncomfortable. And I've done it okay for the last two nights. And I only have to do it for two more nights. So when I get my new mattress, it'll be great. Yeah. So acceptance and meetings. I feel very fortunate, maybe because of where I live, pretty immediately, as soon as the shelter in place started mid-March, a lot of the meetings in this area, they went on Zoom. I mean, I am so grateful to the members who are providing the service, signing up for Zoom and providing meeting information. My home group, which is Saturday morning, it's all women's ACA group, has been on Zoom. And yesterday, the topic was resentment hmm. and forgiveness. Great topic. Great topic. So what I, some of what I've shared is what I said earlier, how I was able to let go of resentment toward my parents and how I can forgive now because I'm okay. I know they did the best they could. Some of what I heard was how resentment have to do with fear and boundaries and detaching, they all go together. How we we can let go of resentment by having boundaries, having boundaries of what's okay and what's not okay with me. That also equates to detaching with love. And then someone said, not everything has to be forgiven by me. That some things are uh, best left to be forgiven by God that resonated with me because I spent a lot of my life actually wondering how my father was going to be punished for all the wrongs that he did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm totally okay with him now. I have love and compassion for him, but all that stuff is between him and his higher power. It's none of my business. As long as I'm okay in my relationship with him, that's, it's where that is. And as you mentioned, I, you know, I've had some opportunities to attend meetings via Zoom that I wouldn't normally go to. Like one day, one Sunday, I don't go to meetings on Sundays, but there was a meeting in a town maybe 45 minutes drive away from here. I mean, I wouldn't drive for 45 minutes on a Sunday to go to a meeting. I needed a meeting, so I attended that meeting, and it worked out great. And so, yeah, it's it's been nice. We got a share from Annie. Hi, Spencer. My name's Annie, and I'm phoning from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I love the recovery show. It's a real uh, way of maintaining my right thinking between my Al-Anon meetings. My son became sober four years ago, and a year into his sobriety, he came to me and asked me if I would consider attending an Al-Anon group to support him in his sobriety. And I said, sure, it's quite related to my line of work. So I said, well, I'm excited to find about it and participate and be part of your recovery. So I started to attend a local group and I found it a really amazing source of support and personal growth. And I've done a lot of therapy and introspection in my life, but this is a whole other level, very intimate, very self directed so really enjoying that i wanted to mention your episode 326 the dual program members because we had a guest talking about aca and she said a phrase that absolutely struck me to the core she spoke about grieving for her childhood 
I didn't grow up with alcoholism, but I grew up with a violent father and a shut down and terrified mother and an only child. When I heard your guest talk about grieving for her childhood, I suddenly realized in all the therapy and the work I've done, I've never actually done that work. And it made me seriously think that maybe I should be joining adult children as well. And I'm not sure how to combine those practices. But it also gave me a clue to why my anger is such an issue and why I have such a bad reaction to uh, older men, men like my father. And the same day I was reading a quote from Thich Nahan, the Buddhist teacher, about the seeds of anger and how to yield the seeds of anger in meditation. So I'm really looking forward to the next phase of my personal growth. And just to th- say thank you again, Spencer, for your openness carrying this program for all the episodes there have been and all your guests because I find each guest has something that is interesting to me to say so thanks thank you for sharing thank you for sharing your experience strength and hope I'm thinking about patience and tolerance as a topic this is something that uh, Eric has been suggesting to me for a while and I know he'll probably want to contribute to that one because he said that's been a real theme in his life recently, and, and I realized, yes, me too. goes right along with acceptance. When are you impatient? When do you wish others would just do things the way you think they ought to be done? Yeah, huh? and how, how do you, how do I find patience and tolerance in those moments, in these moments? So we welcome your thoughts, your experience. Join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or send us an email. And how can people do that, Julie? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Well, that would be our website, therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, which you will find at therecovery.show slash 331 for this episode. Links to the books and other readings that we had videos for the music, and so on. The next song is called Rise Up by Andra Day. I love this song because it reminds me how, I think the saying goes something like how degraded and battered our lives may be, we can find hope. When I, no matter how lost or uncertain I feel in the moment, it reminds me that I can have hope. And how I'm feeling in that moment is not the sum of who I am. Some of the lyrics go, you're broken down on a merry-go-round and you can't find the fighter, but I see it in you, so we're going to walk it out and move mountains. We're going to walk it out and move mountains. I rise up, I rise like the day, I rise up, I rise unafraid, I rise up, and I do it a thousand times again. And I rise up, I like the waves, I rise up in spite of the ache, I rise up. 
Well, speaking of listener feedback, we did get some this week. We got a email from Debbie who writes, Hi, Spencer. First of all, thank you for the recovery show. I just celebrated one year of being part of Al-Anon last week. A friend recommended your show to me at about the same time last year, and as of this week, I have listened to every show at least once. In fact, I listen to the recovery show every night to fall asleep. Although, for sleep, I can only listen to solo shows. For some reason, hearing a second voice when I'm falling asleep is startling. So I have combed all the episodes for Spencer-only shows and saved them as my bedtime helper. I just want to say... I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> you know, I've been told I have this soothing voice and, and I'm gratified that you can use it to help you fall asleep. I, I really am. <laughs> but when I read that, I'm like, I listen to the recovery show every night to fall asleep. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm so boring. I hope that's not what it is. I'm, I'm sure it's not. No, thank you. Really. I'm just getting a little funny out of it. I wanted to comment on two things, the episode on hope and a topic idea. When I came to Al-Anon a year ago, I thought there was no hope for me. I'm in my 50s and have struggled with anxiety and panic attacks since I was 20. I could go for years and be fine, and then I would get hit with such anxiety and panic that I was debilitated for weeks. I would bounce back, wind up my life again, and in a few years it would happen again. Wash, rinse, repeat. I read every self-help book. I went to therapy, mostly when I was deep in anxiety. Talked to friends, wrote in a million journals, and nothing helped. Last year, I hit rock bottom. My mom, who is my qualifier, had experienced a couple months of health issues and was in and out of the hospital. It made me a wreck. I had an abusive and neglectful childhood, and the idea that I would have to take care of my mom when she never really took care of me filled me with such pain, resentment, and anger that I was once again racked with anxiety and panic. I finally walked into an Al-Anon meeting. For the first couple meetings, all I did was cry. But everyone there was welcoming, and from the stories they shared, I knew that, to a person, they understood. It took me a few different meetings to find the one I now call home. I'm using the tools, literature, and meetings to give myself the care that I have needed for all these years. Even though I'm an adult child of an alcoholic, I am so in a lowercase manner. I do not go to ACA meetings, but to a meeting that has the diversity of experience, I think makes the biggest difference to my life. Hearing the experience, hope, and strength from people with every type of relationship with an alcoholic brings depth and breadth to my recovery. I now believe in hope for a better life, even though I didn't find that hope until middle age. I believe in the possibility of change, as you so eloquently said in episode 328. As for a topic idea, one of the things that I have struggled with greatly over my life is self-esteem. Not low self-esteem particularly, but very variable self-esteem. I could go from thinking I was the best thing since sliced bread to believing I sucked at everything in the course of an hour or less. People who know me would describe me as confident, capable, smart, engaging, funny. I could go on. But for decades, I've been waiting for everyone to figure out what a great fraud I was. That I was not really all of those things, but rather just someone who could fake all of those positive attributes. I believe growing up in a very dysfunctional family, like most people, I am learning, that was abusive physically and emotionally put me on this roller coaster of highs and lows. I've often thought to myself, if my parents, the people who are supposed to love me the most, don't value me, how can I be valuable? At the same time, the defiant streak in me led me to do well in school, be the first college graduate in my extended family, have a great career, great husband, and terrific kids. 
On paper, my adult life is enviable, but inside, I'm still the little girl that my parents did not think enough of to parent. The result, variable self-worth that flies all over the map. Sorry for the long email that started out as, hey, Spencer, put me on your list, but I guess I had a lot of thoughts to get out. Thanks again for the great podcast. If you wanted to co-host for the topic, I might be up for it. I'm still an Al-Anon toddler, but I have chaired a few meetings, and maybe a newbie perspective is not a bad thing. Be happy and healthy, Debbie in Portland, Oregon. Wow, Debbie, there's a lot in there. I just want to respond to a couple of things here briefly. Fraud, I feel like a fraud sometimes, yes. I'm sure there are people who haven't, but it's not me. Episode 36 was titled Self-Acceptance and Self-Esteem. That was almost seven years ago. So, you know, I think it's worth coming back around to. I forgot to say earlier, because it's not in my script, I'm putting together an email list where I send out an email maybe once a week, maybe not even that often with upcoming topic ideas and maybe a thought for the week. I put out a call in there for contributions on the topic of self-esteem. So, yeah, we'll be doing that one. I could so relate to what Debbie says about being, I forget what term exactly she uses, but fraud or imposter. Yeah. So, you know, me wanting to do homework perfectly, like I, when I got straight A's, I felt like I was on top of the world. I, I wanted to think I was better than everyone, but really at the bottom of it was because I felt inferior. That's how I wanted to boost myself up. And then I would feel like such fake because that's not how I really felt deep inside. I'm thinking of the book from survival to recovery that post so eloquently talks about how growing up as a, an ACA, how it resonates with being like that. There's an expression in there. It says something like I can be a chameleon and that's how I felt Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I could be any color. I need, I had to be the color, whatever group that I was in, I had to be the color to match that group. And it's really Al-Anon that's, again, doing the steps. I mean, I I can truly say now I'm comfortable in my own skin. Variable self-esteem, that's an interesting term. What I've learned and continue to learn is it's okay not to feel great about myself all the time. Nothing in life I've learned is 100%. I used to think I was so judgmental, like I was a judgmental person. But what I've learned is there's really no judgmental person. Everyone is judgmental some of the time and not. And some people maybe tend to be judgmental more of the time, not. So I I, I am judgmental still. I I, I wish I could say I'm not ever. (laughs) But what is it that, you know, again, that map, like, what what am I striving for? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, sometimes I, I, I don't feel that great about myself. But some other times, because of the work that, I've done and I continue to do. I do feel pretty good about myself. And as long as I keep doing my part, living island on the best way I can, hopefully I'll have more of those days. Yeah. Thank you. Can you read the email from Gina? Oh, yes. Gina shared. Thanks, Spencer. This email has a few different comments. One. I watched this butterfly video as a part of the 21 meditation abundance challenge going around. And although it is very cheesy, in my opinion, it connects to Alanon well. The video is a short story 
put two pictures accompanied with a few questions to think about. Write down three cases when you derive someone of the opportunity to learn his or her lesson. Think of examples such as helping a friend, showing your power over children, etc. It reminded me of how nature can be a higher power. There is a wisdom and guidance in nature which I may not understand. But if I trust in nature, the right thing will happen. If I get in the way of nature, I could prevent what was meant to happen naturally, even though I couldn't see or understand the plan, like a butterfly transitioning out. It reminds me of the difference between enabling and empowering, and how important it is to detach and give someone the dignity to figure things out on their own. Two, Hope for Today just came out on ebook. You can also get the Daily Reader for ACA by signing up to get their free email each day. Example of an ACA daily affirmation. April 24th, helper syndrome. I, I resist impulse to be a good helper. I don't have to take care of people by thinking for them. Intimacy is not about helping people do things right, but rather being supportive and on their side. Today, I will resist the urge to do a little lecturing to those I care about. I do not have to be a continual fountain of good sense, advice, and infinite wisdom. Intimacy means I can simply be with someone. I don't have to take care of people by thinking or feeling for them. Intimacy flourishes when I allow others the dignity of making their own decisions and accepting their own consequences. And there is a Coda Daily Reader that comes from Melody Beattie, which you can get for free by downloading the Coda app. One reader really spoke to me the other day, and it resonates with Alanon. Power in the pause. Coda Reader. Wait. If the time is not right, the way is not clear. The answer or decision not consistent. Wait. We may feel a sense of urgency. We may want to resolve the issue by doing something, anything now, but that action is not our best interest. Living with confusion or unresolved problems is difficult. It is easier to resolve things, but making a decision too soon, doing something before it's time means we may have to go back and redo it. If the time is not right, wait. If the way is not clear, do not plunge forward. If the answer or decision feels muddy, wait. In this new way of life, there is a guiding force. We do not ever have to move too soon or move out of harmony. Waiting is an action, a positive, forceful action. Often, waiting is a God-guided action, one with as much power as a decision and more power than an, an urgent, ill-timed decision. We do not have to pressure ourselves by insisting that we do or know something before it's time. When it is time, we will know. We will move into that time naturally and harmoniously. We will have peace and consistency. We will feel empowered in a way we do not feel today. Deal with the panic, the urgency, the fear. Do not let them control or dictate decisions. Waiting isn't easy. It isn't fun. But waiting is often necessary to get what we want. It is not that time. It is not downtime. The answer will come. The power will come. The time will come. 
and it will be right. Today, I will wait. If waiting is the action I need in order to take care of myself, I will know that I am taking a positive, forceful action by waiting until the time is right. God, help me let go of my fear, urgency, and panic. Help me learn the art of waiting until the time is right. Help me learn timing. Three, I was on the Al-Anon Without Borders Zoom conferences yesterday, and all of a sudden, I heard Mary Pearl speaking on Tradition 10 in relationships. I was blown away because I am so used to hearing her voice on your podcast, and it was surreal to see her Zooming in front of her living room. It was very sweet. Take care, Gina. Yeah, thank you, Gina. Wow, there there is so much in there. So Al-Anon Without Borders, it looks like it's maybe going to be monthly or maybe twice a month. And I'm going to put some links both in the online meetings page at therecovery.show slash online and in the notes for this episode. I found the site that has recordings of a lot of online conferences and meetings. It's AMOT Audio, that's A-M-O-T audio.com. They recorded the Michigan Day of Recovery that I talked about in the last episode. They've been recording the Al-Anon Without Borders episodes, at least for now. All of these things are free to listen to online or to download. They do have a place to make donations. If you care to support what is undoubtedly costing them some money to do. It's a wonderful service. So I, I'll have those links available. Also, the Al-Anon Electronic Literature link to the, the store on the Al-Anon Family Group's website, and we'll have that link. Now, uh, waiting, pausing. Oh, my God, that is so important. I've talked about my two-year pause in trying to decide what to do about my marriage. When I first came to Al-Anon, I didn't know. And this, you know, if the way is not clear, the answer, decision, not consistent, wait. We may feel a sense of urgency. Yes. We may want to resolve the issue by doing something, anything. Yes. But that action is not in our best interest. And that is one of the messages that I heard very clearly at the beginning of my time in Al-Anon. And I'm so grateful that I did because the decision that I came to, which I knew at the time I, I was then able to make it that it was the right decision for me was not probably what I would have done at the beginning. So thanks thanks for that long note. So much good there. And I, I haven't looked at the video yet, but I will. Wow. Waiting. I appreciate what she says about waiting is an action because I've spent a long time Feeling like waiting is doing nothing. It's wasting time. So thinking of the three A's, I mean, I would become aware of something and I would just skip right over acceptance and jump into action oh, yeah. because it felt so urgent. Everything in my life was a crisis that was waiting for my action. So um, waiting, and it's a courageous action because while I'm waiting, it's so uncomfortable, but I can meditate and pray. And then the saying goes, and I've heard it in meetings and on your podcast, don't just do something, stand there. Mm -hmm. I'm also being reminded of what my sponsor says. What my sponsor says is, if it's God's will, it's effortless. 
So when the time comes that I I will know and I need to know, the decision and action will be effortless because it'll be God's will. Mm-hmm. I heard that recently. Yeah. If if I'm working at it, it's my will. Yeah. Yep. All right. Angie wrote with a couple of questions. Hi, Spencer. My name is Angie, and I'm new to Al-Anon and have really been enjoying your The Recovery Show podcast. Currently listening to Hope Means Possibility, number 328. I would love some insight into the best way to find a sponsor and determining what steps I should be taking to get to a place of being ready for that step. Also, I'm having a really tough time connecting with my higher power and would love some help with that. Any recommendations you can provide would be greatly appreciated. Thank you, Angie. Well, I'll put on my sponsor hat for a minute here. The best way to find a sponsor is to ask somebody. Okay, so that's not super helpful, I'm sure. But honestly, doing it, even if you don't do it perfectly the first time, is, in my experience, better than than not doing it. I heard somebody in meetings fairly early on that when they opened their mouth, they were sharing my experience, except that they had a lot of recovery, and I wanted it. And so I asked that person to be my sponsor, and they were my sponsor for for several years until I got to a point where I needed a different kind of guidance, and and I asked somebody else to, to be my sponsor at that point. So that's one thing. If somebody is speaking to you, if you want what they have, that's that's a good guide. The other thing that I, I tell people when I get this question, like from newcomers, is you can ask somebody to be a temporary sponsor. It's not a marriage. There's no divorce. If it doesn't work, it's okay, because sometimes it doesn't work. And if if that's too much for you, if there's somebody that you think you might would like to ask to be a sponsor, you can say, hey, can I call you? And then call them and just, you know, talk. And if it feels like it's clicking, then you can say, you know, I'm looking for a sponsor. Would you be willing to be my sponsor? So those are some of my thoughts. And connecting with the higher power, that for me took time. It took time. I started to realize that some of the things that I was hearing and meeting, some of the things I was reading in the literature were much wiser than I ever would have come up with on my own. And and at the beginning, that was the extent of my connection with a higher power. You can go and, and look in the back catalog of, of the recovery show, and and there will be episodes about higher power. There'll be episodes on step two, episodes on step three, all of which will include some experience, strength, and hope from the people who were hosts and guests in those episodes about how they made a connection. I think for everybody, it's it's an individual thing that that happens. It didn't happen for me quickly. It didn't happen for me suddenly. It was very gradual. You have any thoughts on these, Julie? Well, recommendation to me in finding a sponsor was find someone who has what I want, as you said, Spencer, and ask that person. And that's what I did. And yes, it was taking a huge risk and it was very scary. But you know what I've come to realize is that when I work up the courage to ask someone for anything, to be a sponsor or call up a person because I'm having a hard time or I need help, and that person is not available or says no, it it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't 
mean I'm unlovable or I'm not worth it or, you know, I, I shouldn't have a sponsor. It just means that is not the person that my higher power has chosen for me. So I just need to go so- ask someone else. And uh, connecting with my higher power, what helped me was acting as if. So even though I didn't feel that connection to my higher power, again, I looked to my sponsor. I kept going to meetings. And I, I started doing the things that what the members said they were doing. I started praying. I started meditating. And then I started turning things over, one thing at a time, one moment at a time. So out of the recovery podcast, I love uh, a couple of my favorites are Father Tom's ones. I was re-listening to them recently, and he says in one of them, if you can't turn over the entire day, turn over just right now. Turn over just right now. And that's what I started doing. And guess what? I mm-hmm. found that pretty soon I could turn over the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes, the next hour. And then it turned into an entire day. So yeah. hopefully that's a little bit helpful. A little bit at a time. I think that's how most of us get there, isn't it? Yes. You have one more song for us here. And I think it connects wonderfully to what what you just said. I think so, too. I think so, too. God works in mysterious ways. (laughs) This song is called God Is by Danielle Rose. My sponsor gifted me this song. And this song, just to me, it it defines my higher power. For me, and speaking of that map, this is where I am just for today, and this is where I want to continue to be and to go to that place to live the life that my higher power has laid out for me. And the lyrics go You want to know me, you want to see my face. I do not age with time, I do not fit into a space. I transcend the capacity of your eye, so who am I? It is the question of the moment. It is the question for all time. I am you, and you are mine. I am the beginning and the end. I am the faith in your believing. I am the color of truth. I am the dreamer of your dreams. I am the falling in your love. I am the words of a prayer. I am the silence in the music, I am the music in the silence. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.